The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning. Welcome to Mentoring with Larry Sternberg on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our show is devoted to learning more about mentoring relationships. My guest today is the Honorable John Stedman, Senior Judge of the District of Columbia Court of Appeals. Judge Stedman has had a very impressive career, spending several years in private practice and moving into a few positions in government, including the Deputy Undersecretary of the Army International Affairs, the Special Assistant to the Secretary of Defense, and the General Counsel to the Department of the Air Force. After leaving government, Judge Stedman became a law professor at uh, Pennsylvania Law School and then at Georgetown University Law Center. He served in the Law Center for several years and was also an Associate Academic Dean. He was appointed to the District of Columbia Court of Appeals in 1985 by President Ronald Reagan, and he assumed senior judge status on October 2004. Judge Stedman, it is truly an honor to have you as a guest on our show. Well, it's a great honor and also a great pleasure for me. Glad to be here. I want to start by asking you, early in your career, as early as you want to discuss, was there anyone in your life that you would consider a mentor? Well, uh, my first question, or at least thought, would be, what do you mean by mentor? Because it seems to me that the word has two sort of general meanings that are commonly used. The one that I think pops into a lot of people's minds is the mentor is somebody who kind of helps along through the influence that the mentor has somebody's career. And sometimes the word is used in that way. But another meaning is the one that perhaps you were thinking of, which is that somebody who acts as a counselor or a teacher or somebody who uh, gives a lot of good advice to somebody who is sort of starting out in a career or, for that matter, at any point during a career. Um, So I'll really, I think, be talking about the meaning of the word mentor in both ways. Uh, For example... Obviously, my first mentor in the sense of guiding me or teaching me was my dad. But I don't think that's the, I think that's probably true for a lot of people. <laughs> but the, well, if tell you us want about to know about dad. my very first mentor, it would be, I think, a guy named Jack Sutro many, many, many years ago who was a senior partner in the firm of Pillsbury, Madison, and Sutro, which is where I started my legal career. He was not the Sutro in the name, but he was the nephew or son and was a very senior partner in the firm. Tell us about him. Well, uh, it was funny. In those days, even though that firm was the biggest firm in California, Uh, It didn't recruit actively at law schools. You just sort of went and told them that you might be interested in a job. And for some reason, it's sort of unclear to me, Jack Sutro took a particular interest, or at least seemed to me he took a particular interest in wanting me to join that firm. And 
I spent one summer out there, and I think in the process of that summer, he even uh, took me up, me and another fellow, up to his ranch for a weekend. And uh, anyhow, I did go with the firm, and the whole time that I was there, he always was there kind of making sure that I was getting interesting assignments, uh, that I was getting um, to know a number of people in the firm, particularly the more senior partners. And while I think they did that more or less with everybody in those days, because there were only about 50 of us, uh, to the extent that it was sort of a senior guy who you felt was paying attention to you, uh, he was my mentor. But he was not my direct mentor. The guy who was really my mentor in the sense of showing me what it was like to be a young lawyer and what I was supposed to do and helping me was a fellow named Carlisle Lane, who um, was a relatively young partner, but he's the guy I work for directly. And to the extent that somebody was a mentor in in directly helping you as a neophyte to learn the ropes, uh, it's Carlisle. Now, both Jack Sutro and Carlisle Lane, unfortunately, have long since passed on, so I can't thank them personally, either one of them, for being my mentor in my early youth. Do you remember anything specific that you learned from either one of these gentlemen? Well, the guy who I learned stuff from was Carlisle. Um, yeah, I learned a lot from him. I learned about uh, being very careful in uh, not jumping to conclusions to fully research the law before you did something. Uh, and I also learned from him, Larry, something very important, which is, can I call you Larry? Of course. <laughs> uh, something which um, has always, I think, done good things for me, and that is to remember that you have to live a life, that you can't spend all your time uh, in any single occupation or work, uh, that family is important, that social life is important. It was kind of different from what I understand some of these major firms do now, which is to kind of work everybody to death. I mean, I did work there, but they also gave you time to to be yourself, and that wasn't true of all the partners there, but it was true of Carlisle, and I was always very appreciative of that. That allowed me to woo, meet and woo and marry my present wife, who has been my wife for over 50 years. Well, congratulations. <laughs> okay. To, to both you and, and your wife. <laughs> when you decided to move from this prestigious private firm into working for the government, how did these two gentlemen feel about that? Well, I don't think they were eager for it, but again, being the kind of people they are, uh, I explained to them, you know, uh, I was never in the military. I've never worked for the government. Uh, I think I should put in a couple of years. And what happened was this was during the Kennedy time when the new frontier and a lot of people were interested in the government. I got a call from somebody I knew who was in the Department of Justice, and he said, Stedman, you've got to come back here for a couple of years and and work in the Department of Justice in the Office of Legal Counsel. And so my ears perked up, and I talked with both Sutro and um, Carlisle, and I always called him Mr. Sutro. Carlisle, I call Carlisle. Um, the, and I said, I really would like to do this. And they said, well, you know, you're right at the verge of being a partner, which I knew, and... It'd, it'd be hard to do that after you became a partner because then, of course, you want to be the partner stuff. 
So why don't you go back now and in a couple of years come back? And I thought that was perfect. So I came back, and like so many people in Washington, you come and one thing leads to another, and you just stay. So that's the way it was. It's a fascinating place to live. You meet uh, an, an incredible number of dedicated and brilliant people in Washington, D.C. Well, you, yeah, yes. that's partly true, but also, I got to tell you, it's it's a nice place to live. It really is. People, uh, even if you're not involved in the whole political sphere, which I certainly am not now, I mean, I'm... I think my children were very glad to be brought up here. The seasons are wonderful. The spring is unbelievable. And the winter isn't that bad, and the summer is tolerable. So uh, I'm, I'm glad we stayed. Although San Francisco is not a bad place either. <laughs> no, I think, uh, I, yeah. I think they both would have their advocates if we That's were taking right. a vote. Uh, so when you went to the Department of Justice... Was there anyone there who took an interest in you and went out of his or her way to help you grow? I think by the time I got there, uh, I was expected more to be on my own. Uh, I didn't have a very high-ranking position, but it was a GS-16. It was pretty high, and... uh, I worked uh, directly for the fellow who got me to come back there, whose name was Norman Schley, who was the assistant attorney general. And in that sense, I I felt like I was pretty much doing what I thought I should be doing. Now, there were two fellows in between me and Schley, and they sort of gave me a lot of, hints, if you want to put it that way, as to how the realities worked in the particular office. But it wasn't the same. I mean, they weren't, they weren't my mentors, if you want to put it that way. Um, they were just my bosses. Fair enough. When you left the Department of Justice, and I believe you went into the Department of the Army from, from there, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Tell us about that. Were there different cultures? Oh, pretty darn different. Um, yes, I mean that was a real immersion into the into the Pentagon. Um, that came about not through the mentor of somebody who <clears throat> was an old wise hand. That actually came about because of a classmate at um, Harvard Law School who was over in the Pentagon, and there was this opening, and he suggested to the Secretary of the Army that he knew this guy, John Stedman, over at Justice, who might very well fill the job that was open. And so that's how I met Steve Ailes, who was then the Secretary of the Army, and uh, he apparently thought I could do the job, and so I did it. So you had somebody who... And the same thing worked when I became the Special Assistant to the Secretary of Defense. Once you're in the system, you know, people kind of know you. They just but somebody had of, to give you an opportunity. The main thing is you got to get into the, into the place. And then people can see your work, and you don't need a <clears throat> a mentor to... The mentor can help you get the job, but once you're in there, you sort of have to do it. You have to go <laughs> on your merits. Yes, absolutely. As you were going through those couple of career progressions, is there anything that's, that is top of mind that you learned at that point in your career or some growth that you experienced as a result of being in the Department of Justice and the Department of the Army? Oh, this is going back. You're pushing my memory hard. Um, 
what what I think you mostly learn is that there are an awful lot of good people in government, particularly the career people. Uh, well, I shouldn't put it that way, but the career people in government, I think, are a dandy bunch who, at, at least when I was there, who were really trying their best to do the best they could for themselves, for the government, for the country, for the people. Uh, I think you develop a lot of respect for I agree. that having, part. Of having the- worked in Washington, D.C., I think government gets a very bad rap. As you say, there are smart, dedicated people who have the public good in mind when they're working and when they're making decisions, and they're doing a job that is awfully, awfully complex and challenging. And I I think they're painted with a broad brush inappropriately. Well, in my present position, I wouldn't comment on anything one way or the other. Yeah, I, I understand. Government, yeah. <laughs> I understand. Right. We're about to take a commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to continue to ask Judge Stedman about his career progression and his transition into teaching law. So we're going to take a brief break. Stay with us, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When people are making a significant impact, they're engaged, motivated, and excited. They love what they do. When those people work for you, you get results. Results matter, and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit within an organization's mission, vision, and values. Our online assessments and person-to-person interviews not only identify talents, but uncover a roadmap for success from a person's first day on the job to the day they retire. When people celebrate their talents, use them daily, and think about how to lead with their strengths, they help their companies grow, produce, and innovate. Want to learn more about empowering your people to help you do great things? Visit us today at www.talentplus.com. Talent Plus, where science meets talent, where people drive results. Recognized as one of Fortune Magazine's Great Place to Work and ranked number two by 2015 Leadership 500 Awards for Exceptional Leadership Development Programming, Talent Plus offers two back-to-back events to help you and your organization build engagement and revitalize your culture. Wednesday, October 5th, Get Plussed. Thursday, October 6th, Leadership Toolbox. Equip your leaders with tools to instantly engage employees and their teams. Space is limited. Register today by visiting www.talentplus.com slash events or call 1-800-VARSITY. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. We're back with Judge John Stedman talking about his career and the people who helped him grow and progress in his career. I want to proceed to the time when you decided to leave government and teach law. Why did you make that decision? Well, uh, you got to understand that the General Counsel of the Air Force is a political job in the sense that you're not, you're not a career fellow. You're, uh, you're subject to, you get your job and you lose your job as administrations change. So, uh, the judge, I mean, President Nixon was elected and I served on for a year after he was elected, but eventually, uh, they decided to fill my position with one of their people. So, I then had to think, I was 39 years old, going on 40, what do I do now? And that's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, 
was I going to go back to San Francisco? Uh, was I going to join a D.C. law firm? Was I going to do something which I always had sort of in the back of my mind thought about? When I was in San Francisco, as I looking back on it, kind of absurd, I was awfully young. But I taught classes at two night law schools that were out there, and I'd really, I really liked it. And I figured, if I'm ever going to be in academia, I've got to do it now, um, because it's not going to happen later on. So why not? <laughs> so I talked with various people I knew that were in well, I also talked with several law firms, including Pillsbury, about going back there. And uh, I talked with various people that I knew who were professors or deans at various schools. And the word kind of, in those days, it was quite different than now. There was kind of a network among the deans that would sort of say, you know, there's this guy, he looks like he's a pretty good prospect. And... Um, so I ended up at Penn, and I very much enjoyed the two years at Penn. I learned a huge amount about what law schools are all about. <clears throat> I was woefully ignorant of the fact that law schools are not just places where people teach. They're places where professors do and are expected to engage in legal research and legal writing. Uh, so I jumped into that, and I published a couple, quite a few, not quite a few, but some articles on various things. And uh, then Georgetown said, why don't you come down here for a year as a visiting professor? And I like Pennsylvania, I mean Philadelphia, but gosh, uh, you know, we'd already lived seven or eight years in Washington, so... I said to Allison, our kids were still pretty small, come on, let's go down there, and who knows what this will lead to. And, of course, we then stayed. Uh, Georgetown gave me a tenured appointment, and uh, I thought the rest of my life that would be where I was. I very much enjoyed teaching at Georgetown. But that was a, <clears throat> those are, that was a big decision. I mean, it changed the course of my life, really. And if I had gone back into these law firms at 65, I would have, or 70 at the most, I would have uh, been fully retired. And instead, here I am at 86, still doing at least some uh, judging work. And, you know, you just, you never know how things are going to turn out. But on that one, I really didn't have any mentor in the sense of somebody telling me how law, law schools worked. You just sort of picked it up by talking with your colleagues, by sort of you, you picked up the culture. And I can't say I had any particular mentor um, who told me this is what you do as a law professor. I, I just sort of learned it. How would you characterize the difference in the culture between the law school in Philadelphia and Georgetown? Oh, they were very similar. Uh, <clears throat> both of them put a lot of stress on, uh, on scholarship. Uh, Penn was a smaller school, but not that much smaller. And the kinds of colleagues were pretty much the same. I think that uh, the differences between law schools are much less than the similarities. And I'm not just talking about schools like Georgetown and, and uh, Penn. I'm talking about, I was on several um, inspection teams for the ABA, and you'd go to a school like... Uh, uh, the school, I forget the exact, the University of Illinois down in southern Illinois in the coal country of Illinois. And, you know, the school itself, the way they taught, the books they used, uh, it was very similar, except that 
they had a lot more courses on coal law, uh, <laughs> coal and gas. <laughs> yeah. Not too many Georgetown students are interested in coal and gas, but uh, at least coal. But um, it's it's there's a lot of similarity, and the biggest difference probably among law schools is not so much the schools as the students. In the I sense understand. that at um, schools like Georgetown and Penn, you get very very good students from all over the country, while at this Southern Illinois school, uh, they were mostly local folks, but in the area of Southern Illinois, the school was very well thought of. And the students, I think, that went there got a pretty good legal education. Just as an example, I went to a lot of other schools, SMU and various schools on these inspection teams, and there's a lot of similarity. I don't get this subject. It's got nothing to do with mentoring. Well, that's okay. We're, we're, we're coming up on the transition you made. You were at Georgetown for quite a number of years, yes? Yeah, almost 15. 15 years. And then you made a transition to be a judge. You were appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1985. Right. I, I assume that in that position, you had law clerks. Is that correct? Had what? Law clerks. Oh, law clerks. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and did, as, did you ever see yourself as being a mentor or a guide to any of these law clerks? That is exactly correct. Um, not consciously, but, you know, at law school, you have um, dozens, hundreds, really, thousands of students and while you're interested in them, you really can't be a mentor to any one of them in the sense that a mentor is somebody who takes a very special interest in a particular person uh, and guides them and sort of almost one-on-one uh, tries to teach them something or help them along. And <clears throat> the closest thing I came, would come to to that in a law school setting is somebody who would be a research assistant, something like that. But in the judicial context, you've got, in our case, two clerks. And you work with them for a year. And it's in your own best interest that you give them a lot of personal attention and try to help them do a really good job, because when they do a good job, they're helping you to do a good job. And it's you get to know them really well. And um, then, of it's course... It's time for us to take a break. I'm sorry to interrupt you like that. When we come back, we're going to hear more about this relationship where Judge Stedman was mentoring these law clerks. And one of the questions I'm going to be anxious to hear him answer is, how did you select the people who ultimately became your law clerks? So let's take a break. And that's what we'll talk about when we come back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When people are making a significant impact, they're engaged, motivated, and excited. They love what they do. When those people work for you, you get results. Results matter and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit with an organization's mission, vision, and values. Our online assessments and person-to-person interviews not only identify talents, but uncover a roadmap for success from a person's first day on the job to the day they retire. When people celebrate their talents, use them daily, and think about how to lead with their strengths, they help their companies grow, produce, and innovate. Want to learn more about empowering your people to help you do great things? Visit us today at www.talentplus.com. Talent Plus, where science meets talent, where people drive results. 
Recognized as one of Fortune Magazine's Great Place to Work and ranked number two by 2015 Leadership 500 Awards for Exceptional Leadership Development Programming, Talent Plus offers two back-to-back events to help you and your organization build engagement and revitalize your culture. Wednesday, October 5th, Get Plussed. Thursday, October 6th, Leadership Toolbox. Equip your leaders with tools to instantly engage employees and their teams. Space is limited. Register today by visiting www.talentplus.com slash events or call 1-800-VARSITY. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. We're back. Stedman. Uh, Hi, Judge Stedman. We are going to talk about what criteria did you use to ultimately select the people who became your law clerks? I imagine there was pretty intense competition for a position like that. Uh, Yeah, I I, I don't know if it was intense, but you you got more applications than there was. And there were more than two applications, that's for sure. Um, well, you know, it's hard to say uh, exactly how you go about doing it. Um, the uh, Obviously, one important thing is how well do they do in law school, because when you're a clerk, you're doing a lot of the same sort of stuff that you do in law school in the sense that you're doing legal research, you're doing legal writing, <clears throat> and um, while these may not be important characteristics for necessarily important characteristics in order to be a really good lawyer, I think sometimes they're overstressed for the lack of any other objective criteria to use. Uh, I mean, a lot of people are wonderful lawyers who didn't do that all that well in law school because they just weren't that interested in the, I don't know, scholastic, if I can use that word, side of the law. But um, so because of that, you're looking to see how well they did on their transcripts. You also are quite interested in whether or not they were on law review or on other now, of course, there's a number of law reviews in most law schools, but they've had that kind of experience because writing for law reviews is sort of like the kind of work that they do here. And so that's 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 kind of where you started. And um, you obviously wanted to get the best people that had the most legal experience in, I mean, the most law writing experience in the various schools that were applying. So then what you do is that kind of winnowed it down to maybe six people or eight, as many as you had the time to interview. So then you interview them. And the second thing that's important is you've got to really get along with the, with the clerk. I mean, the clerk has to be, is, you're going to be working with this person day after day after day after day. And it's not like they go off for a week or two weeks and do their thing. You see them every day. And so um, you talk to the people and sort of try to get some sense of how the chemistry works. And eventually you just have to decide. And most of the time the clerks turn out to be really good. in fact, I, would, I can hardly think of any clerk that I've had that I wasn't reasonably satisfied with. Some are better than others, of course, like in anything. But that doesn't mean they were going to be better lawyers or better people. It's just that it turned out that for the kind of thing we do, they were very good at. That's kind of the way it works. Did you now other people t- maybe do it a different way? For instance, I think some judges it's very important what school they came from. I mean, they want they always want to have somebody from the 
law school they went to, and they'll always try and hire one person from that school, which is fine. I mean, however it's done, it's not going to be a perfect system. You just do the best you can. I'm sure that's true. Over time, did you develop any sort of progression as to how you brought these clerks along? Yeah. Uh, when you when they when I first started here at Georgetown, I taught a lot of courses uh, besides first year property, which was my basic course. But I taught administrative law. I taught commercial law. I taught real estate transactions. I taught a lot of different kinds of courses, but never any criminal course. And on our court, the percentage of criminal appeals is about at least a third, maybe more. I didn't know anything about criminal law to speak of. I knew I knew something, but... Uh, so the first year or two, not only did the clerks have to learn a lot of stuff, I had to learn a lot of stuff. <laughs> so we were sort of in a funny sort of way learning together. <laughs> Looking back on it, it's kind of extraordinary, but that's the way it normally is with people who become judges because unless it's a specialized court, the there's a huge range of cases that come. Like in our court, we're the only appellate court, so we get all the appeals. We get all the civil appeals, we get the criminal appeals, we get the family court appeals, we get the bar discipline cases, we get the administrative appeals, workers' compensation, zoning, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, everything. Uh, and no private lawyer or even law school professor, by the nature of the beast, except in small towns, in law firms, you generally have to be specialized. And so you come up and you're a judge on a court of general appeals, you got a, a, a lot of stuff to learn. Um, and I think I probably was better prepared than a lot of these judges because in law school I had taught a lot of different courses and I had a lot of government experience and administrative stuff. And uh, But I didn't know anything about criminal law. And so for the first couple of years, we were learning together. Now, after a while, um, I knew how the system worked here. And I could get a sort of a standard two or three days that I would spend with the clerks at the beginning of the clerkship, just cluing them in as to how stuff worked around here. Now, how did I find that out? There I had a mentor in the sense of somebody who told me how the place operated and what it meant to be a judge on this court and who was who and all that sort of stuff. And that was the judge. In those days, our chambers uh, were opposite each other. In other words, he went out my door and directly opposite me was the door to his chambers. That was Frank Navaker. And oddly enough, he's still right next to me here in the senior judge corridor. <laughs> and I would always go over to Frank and I'd say, Explain this to me. How how, well, how does this work? What, what is this? Uh, and I guess he became my mentor in not the sense of somebody that sometimes, as I said at the very beginning of our discussion, not in the sense of somebody who uh, is a more senior guy who kind of tries to bring you along and tries to help you to be sure to get into this job and then into that job and then into that job. Not that kind of a mentor, but the kind of mentor who teaches you stuff and tells you stuff and gives you guidance on something in which you're actively engaged. And that was a huge help to me when I came on this court. So that's the way it is, and that's what I've been doing now for 33 years, which is more than most of my present law clerks were born. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> ironic. 
when I, look at, clerk, I look at him, I said, I've been doing this stuff longer than you've been alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll get you some credibility. Yeah, it gives you a little bit of credibility. They were very respectful, anyhow. <laughs> when, when a law clerk joins you, is there any conversation that occurs between you and this law clerk about what they might want to do with their career. They're with you for a year, so you both know that. Is there any conversation between you and the law clerk about what comes next? Uh, there's less than you might think, but yes, of course that occurs. Uh, sure, because the problem with being a law clerk is, for most law clerks, it's a one-year deal. So... You, you struggle to get the job as a law clerk, knowing you're going to do that normally right after law school. Not everybody does it right after law school, but most people do. And then they've got to decide right away, well, what am I going to do next? Because the firms are hiring and stuff like that. <clears throat> it's not at all uncommon for people who come to be law clerks for them already to have a job in the sense that they'll interview for a job with a firm and then they'll get a law clerk job and the firm will be very happy actually to have them do the law clerk job because they'll, they know the, fir the firm knows that the law clerk is going to learn a lot in the first year about what being a lawyer really is all about because they're going to see, in the case of appellate courts, dozens and dozens of law cases and how they work and where mistakes are made and how the system operates and stuff like that. And so the law firm doesn't have to, for the first year, pay the law clerk. The government will pay the law clerk and the firm gets the benefit of this. So those kind of people, there's no nothing really to talk about because they know where they're going to go right away. <clears throat> but for other ones, um, yeah, I mean, should I go with the government? Should I go with a private firm? How's it going to work? Um, well, sometimes it's an economic decision that... Uh, and this is more and more true of late than it used to be, the law clerk has this student debt, and their feeling is they've got to go with a big law firm if they can get a job and make as much money as they can uh, in order to pay off the debt as fast as they can and then start thinking about what they really want to do with their life. And what I always tell them is... <laughs> You may think that's what's going to happen, but you watch. You get in the firm, and you start getting these salaries, and you start getting involved, and I always think that you ought not to do X, thinking that, well, after X, I'm going to do Y. Because, like, don't come to Washington thinking you're going to go back to San Francisco, because stuff happens. <laughs> you, can't, you can't predict life. And, and I know students would sometimes talk to me, where should I go to lawyer? And, oh, I'm going to go to New York City for a couple of years, and then I'm going to go to back home or something. I say, listen, where you go first is probably where you're going to end up. It didn't happen with me, but it very well could have. I could have very easily stayed at Pillsbury. I I like San Francisco, I like the area, I had a lot of friends, uh, I liked what I was doing as a lawyer. It wouldn't have been a bit surprising if I had spent my whole career out there. And coming back to Washington, the same thing sort of happened. At Georgetown, I mean, I thought I would be a law professor for the rest of my life. I was in Washington, I, Wonderful law school, great colleagues, interesting students, loved doing what I was doing. Why should I want something different? Now I know the next question you're going to ask. Yes. Go ahead. Answer it. 
why did you become a judge? Yes. Well, <laughs> that's sort of an interesting thing. Um, it sort of came out of the blue. You know, they have a system here of uh, <clears throat> a commission is uh, charged with recommending names to the president, three names. And the president picks one of those three names. And there was a chairman of the commission who was trying to, I think, expand the um, pool from which they could nominate uh, or pick people. Uh, he didn't want just U.S. former U.S. prosecutors or, or people working for public defender service or people. He, he wanted people from private practice. He wanted people uh, who were, in my case, from law schools to be part of the pool. And so said, why don't you put your name in? I said, what do I know about judging? He said, oh, come on. So I said, well, why not? So I threw my name into the hat, and then one thing led to another. And the big difference between being a law professor and being an appellate judge is all my hypotheticals are real. <laughs> That's the big difference. But a lot of it is the same. You're doing legal research. You're doing legal writing. Yeah, the legal writing isn't in law journals. It's in opinions. But it's sort of the same. And so I found that part of transferring over from being a law professor to being a judge <laughs> to be very easy. It was, I think there was stuff I was I'm very sorry. familiar with. I think the responsibility, once you're a judge, as you say, it's the hypotheticals are real and there's real human beings whose lives might be materially affected you by never, a particular you, decision. You never forget that. I remember... Uh, one of the very first things I had here was a, an appeal from a decision that a certain juvenile uh, who had been charged with but not convicted of an offense should be held <coughs> uh, in the juvenile facility rather than being sent home. And under our rules, you, you could take an immediate appeal. That's the very first appeal I heard, uh, emergency appeal. And uh, there were three of us, because that's the way it works. And it turned out that the other two split as to whether you should be held. So they turned to me and they said, well, Judge Stedman, what do you call it? Because I'd been told, oh, you know, there are two old timers on this and they probably will agree and you can just go along with it. <laughs> so I said... Well, as I understand the law and the discretion of the trial court, I have to say he ought to be held. So he was. And I flew off to Maine. And the next day I was sitting on the beach there with the sun and the surf. And I said, God damn. Here I am, free, sitting on the beach, enjoying the weather. And here's this kid back in Washington, D.C., sitting in a juvenile facility instead of at his home. Man, this job really has consequences. I remember very well, and I've always had that in mind ever since, that these are not theoretical problems. These are real problems affecting real people. And I tell this to my law clerks. I say, listen, <laughs> What you're doing is very important stuff. Uh, and, I, and that's why I ask them to wear a tie, or if they're women, to be equivalent. Because I said, you know, it's sort of informal. We have a good time and this and that. But at the end of the day, what you're doing is affecting real people. I've always stressed that to my clerks. One final question here. And in that way, I'm a mentor. That's certainly the case. Uh, yeah. uh, that uh, what an important thing to stress to people that lives are lives are really affected by what you're doing. 
have you stayed in touch with any of these law clerks over the years? Oh, yes. Um, not all of them, but, uh, yeah, you, you, you get very interested in what they're doing. And uh, those that are in Washington from time to time, quite a, from some of them, not all, but some, you have lunch and they tell you what they're doing and sometimes they ask you what you think they might do next or whatever. Yeah, you know, they're, they don't just go off into the right off into the sunset. And I like that part of it. And it's not all to me. stay here in D.C., of course, and that then you sort of lose track of. Sure. Yeah. It seems to me that that's a sign of a significant mentoring relationship where the relationship continues well beyond the professional relationship into something that's less formal but more personal. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And as a matter of fact, it's sort of remarkable. The uh, students that I had in my first year, first years of teaching, in the sense that I followed a lot of them as well, are now all retiring. (laughs) Seems hard to believe. They're all 65. <laughs> I'm, uh, as it happens uh, for our listeners, I happen to be one of those people. I had the good fortune to be in John Stedman's property class in my very first year of law school. And um, I, I can tell you, John, that you have had a major impact on my life. You have no idea of how often I think about you and your wife Allison and your entire family. My relationship with you has made me a better person and I am extremely grateful for the relationship. Wow. (laughs) Well, I try. (laughs) Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to wrap up this segment of Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. You've been listening to Judge John Stedman, a senior judge in the D.C. appellate circuit. Thanks again, Judge Stedman, for being a guest on the show. Thank you for joining us this week for Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. Please join Larry again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, for another edition of the program on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.